This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible. I am Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova-Barbeau. We are neonatal intensive care physicians. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Dr. Barbeau, what's up? good we've had an interesting week we had some really hard things in the in the unit in these last uh few weeks so that has been um a reminder of why some of our initiatives are are so important at you know taking yeah, care of I ha- ourselves i had to quote jimmy turner probably 10 times this week telling people hey this week yeah, yeah. that's right <laughs> telling them hey listen listen to the episode he says so many listen cool things oh, that's right that's right uh, that was that was as a as a physician I know says exactly exactly. <laughs> so, um, but we we have we have journals left to cover despite what's going on in the unit. How how have you been? I've been good. You know, um, I'm taking this show on the road this week, and I'm recording That's from right. uh, one of the study rooms at the medical school. So please uh, pardon our appearance if there's some uh, some echoes and interruptions but yeah um doing lots of working on lots of cool stuff so i'm excited and uh, yeah like right. you said there's a lot of there's a lot of journals to cover this week so uh, maybe uh, we shouldn't wait too much do you want do you want to get us started yeah well i think we have two articles on um uh adults who are former former preemies so i think we should start there let's let's go right ahead Sure. So the first article from the uh, Journal of Pediatrics is health-related quality of life from adolescence to adulthood following extremely preterm birth. Um, the lead author, Yan Yan Ni, um, and this is a collaboration between healthcare systems and psychology departments in the UK. Um, and their objective was to look at self-reported and parent-reported health-related quality of life in adults who were born extremely preterm compared to control uh, participants born at term and to evaluate how that changes over time. And this was a follow-up of the Epicure study, um, which we've actually talked about before on the on the podcast, but they've put out um, a lot of uh, other papers. Yeah, if, if somebody doesn't know the Epicure study, it's yeah. time to Google it. <laughs> time to Google it, especially for our trainees. Take, take a look. Um, but but the, the basics are that um, they looked at all births, less than 26 weeks of gestation in the United Kingdom and in Ireland. Um, and then they recruited uh, participants who were born at term at about age uh, six years of life. Um, and then they followed uh, they followed them up. So in total, they have 129 participants born extremely preterm, 65 control participants. Um, and this study is looking at the follow-up at ni- the 19-year assessment as compared kind of to the 11-year assessment. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Yeah, I think um, it was uh, a neat study design. Um, just so we can uh, just tell you a little bit more about the participants, uh, participants. 
participants. Um, they recruited between March and December of 1995. Um, they had 812 infants admitted to neonatal intensive care units. 315 of those survived to discharge and were followed longitudinally, like I said, at two and a half, six, 11, and now 19 years. Um, they're using the Health Utilities Index Mark Three, or they uh, call that the HUI three. So it or covers the Huey. basic, the Huey. <laughs> I don't know if that's right. I don't care, but it could be. We're making it up. <laughs> uh, which covers eight basic attributes: vision, hearing, speech, ambulation, dexterity, emotion, cognition, and pain. And then they look um, at function within each attribute, graded on a five or six point uh, scale, um, much like a Likert scale. Um, and just of note, uh, the, the Huey, <laughs> it's catching we're on. calling it, uh, the normative values um, were defined um, uh, from Canadian citizens. They also looked at um, neurodevelopmental impairment determined at 11 years, and it was defined as one of the following, a cognitive impairment classified as a score greater than two standard deviations below the mean of controls using the Kaufman assessment battery for children visual impairment or blindness, hearing loss with AIDS or profound hearing loss, or moderate to severe neuro impairment, uh, neuromotor impairment using the gross motor function classification system. So let's get into the results. So 42% of both the controls and the preterm patients were followed up um, at 19 years. Uh, there was no significant difference in age, sex, maternal education between the extremely preterm group and the control group. Um, participants born extremely preterm had significantly greater rates of cognitive, motor, and visual impairments at the 11-year mark than controls. That's not surprising, right? No, I, and 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 again, they've published on on that in the in the past, and so that is consistent with what we know uh, about babies born extremely preterm. And then compared with the non-assessed participants born extremely preterm, so the babies who did not uh, return for follow-up at 19 years, those assessed, so the 129, the 42% had lower rates of cognitive impairment and intellectual disability, greater developmental and intelligence test scores at the previous assessments, um, and and of note, they were representative of the original cohort in terms of sex, gestational age, birth weight, maternal education, and overall neurodevelopmental impairment. Um, so, so again, those assessed, the 42% assessed, um, had lower rates of cognitive impairment and greater developmental test scores. Um, so they just wanted to mention that about the group loss to follow up. Participants born extremely perturbed preterm without neurodevelopmental impairment, again, that was designated at 11 years, um, reported significantly uh, lower uh, scores at 19 years compared with controls. And those with impairment reported the lowest scores in comparison with controls or adults born extremely preterm without impairment. And similarly, those results uh, were found when using the parent report. And then they wanted to go into that a little bit uh, more granularly. So compared with controls, the participants born extremely preterm with impairment had significantly lower uh, scores in speech, ambulation, dexterity, cognition, and pain, whereas those extremely preterm cohort without impairment reported only differences in speech and cognition. 
And then they wanted to compare mm-hmm. those three groups to the parent report. So on parent report, participants born extremely pre- preterm with impairment had lower um, uh, individual scores in speech, ambulation, dexterity, emotion, cognition, and pain compared with uh-huh. controls. And parent report differences for participants born preterm without impairment were actually only found in emotion and cognition. Other interesting findings, both the self-reports and parent reports showed that participants born preterm had more suboptimal attributes than controls. They had significantly greater proportions of moderate disability um, and severe disability. Some of the other interesting uh, findings between the parent reports and the participant reports is that parents reported significantly lower scores than participants did at 19 years. And that was also true at the 11 years. Um, differences were found in ambulation, dexterity, emotion, and cognition compared with self-report. They didn't find any difference between parent report and um, uh, preterm adults uh, in vision, hearing, speech, and pain. And the last kind of interesting point is they looked at the change from 11 to 19 years of age, and they found that the yeah the right, median scores decreased from 0.87 to 0.77 for participants born extremely preterm, uh, from 1 to 0.97, so still significant change for controls as well. And right. uh, again, looking at the uh, group of extremely preterm with impairment, they had the greatest a decrease in scores from 0.72 to 0.55. And I just wanted to highlight, so there's a lot of data in here. Um, Yeah, so what do you make make of that paper? is particularly surprising. So the lowest scores were in the group that was extremely preterm, who were noted to have some significant impairment at 11 years. Then the next lowest uh, was the preterm group without impairment, as compared to controls. And then in general, and that's been shown in other studies, parents uh, reported lower scores than adults born preterm report for themselves. Mm -hmm. And everybody had lower scores, even the controls, when they followed up between 11 and and 19 years. And so, yeah, if the teenagers are are tough, tough, that's a time where everybody (laughs) is transitioning in their healthcare from, say, you know, pediatric quote unquote problems to adult quote unquote problems. They're on their own uh, potentially for the first time. So um, that I thought was really striking was that it didn't matter which group you were in that, that, that the scores dropped. I think it's really important that we start um, really paying attention to adults born preterm. Like when we had Juliet um, on, on the podcast mm-hmm. um, because they report different uh, what's important to them is not the same as what's important to their parents. Um, and we know from data, it's not what's important to us as, as physicians. And then I, I just, yeah. yeah when ahead. they looked, no, I was going to say when they looked at the, the changes over time, right. They, the, the, the findings you mentioned where the preterms, the median MAU went down from 0.87 to 0.77 and then the control from one to 0.97, you mentioned that, but then, they uh, quantify that by saying that it was driven by decreases in vision, emotion, mm-hmm. and pain. Um, so vision makes it makes perfect sense to me. If, if you have any issues there, obviously your quality of life could be directly impacted. But emotion and pain felt like yeah, such a dramatic. Oh, what a yeah. heartbreak, you know? Uh, of all the things, um, those seem like potentially the most you know impactful of your of your day to day life. 
Yeah, and I thought they, they just did a nice um, statement that it's clear that even those with without recognized impairments, born preterm, may have health-related issues following extremely preterm birth that continue to exert important effects on quality of life in early adulthood. Medical services need to be aware of the challenges faced in adaptation to adult life and to recognize that ongoing support may be needed to successfully bridge this critical stage in development. Very well said. Yeah. That was very well so that said. I, I think sums it all up. And and particularly for those extremely preterm, particularly for those preterm with impairment, but it just shows that we, we're not even optimizing the transition for uh term people born term into adult no, care. Agreed. So this leads us into our next paper published in the Journal of Pediatrics. The paper is called Low Birth Weight as an Early Life Risk Factor for Adult Stroke Among Men. First author is Lina Lija, and uh, this is from a group out of Sweden. So the um, interesting question that the, the study is posing is, is there an association between birth weight and the risk of adult stroke independent of BMI in young adult age among men? In the background, obviously, they're mentioning that there's a knowledge gap between um, the the risk of stroke and independent of body mass index in, in men born preterm. So they're trying to bridge that gap. So that was very interesting. They're using uh, epidemiologic data collected, uh, thanks to the Swedish system, on babies born between 1945 and 1961. So that, that was pretty neat. And if you're interested in how that data was collected, you can always look at the paper. They go over some of these um, identification techniques that Sweden has to track their population. And so they follow that. Because these are large data sets, they didn't have much data to offer. I mean, they did have birth weight, they did have childhood BMI, young adult BMI, um, but not much else. And they do acknowledge that, uh, the fact that they didn't have any information on gestational age and maternal smoking and things like that. So anyway, they're very upfront about it. So take it as you may. The the group was very large. I mean, 35, almost 36,000 children that were followed pretty much uh, from the age of 20 years until stroke, death, or if they left the country. And the group um, closed, I guess, the study and uh, in December of 2016, meaning they didn't look at data past December 2016. Um, they did calculate, based on height and weight, the childhood BMI and the young adult uh, BMI. So um, there's there's a lot of interesting things in the methods, but let's let's really look at um, the results. So for um, the the patient population, the mean duration of follow up starting from age 20 years was 40 years. So <laughs> that was that was huge. The mean birth weight was 3.6 kilos. And they were able to record a total of 1,184 first strokes. 905 of them were ischemic. 234 of them were intracerebral hemorrhages. And those obviously happened before the end of follow-up. What was very interesting, obviously, is when they looked at the relationship between birth weight and stroke, they found that birth weight was inversely associated with the risk of adult stroke in a linear manner. Put Put even more interestingly, expressed per kilogram, the risk of adult stroke was reduced by 19% per kilogram increased in birth weight. And what was um, interesting is that um, this this relationship was similarly um, found um, between birth weight and the risk of either ischemic or hemorrhagic stroke. They, they, they did a Cox regression model with multiple variables and um, 
they, they really didn't find any difference because even in the multivariate analysis per kilogram, the risk of stroke was reduced by instead of 19 by 21% per kilogram increase in birth weight, independent of BMI at age 20 years. So the relationship with BMI is, is also an interesting one. In addition, BMI in young adulthood showed a direct association with increased risk of stroke, but childhood BMI somehow was not significantly associated with the risk of adult stroke. So uh, interesting that the BMI really plays a role in young adulthood, but childhood BMI did not really play a, a role um, when it came to the uh, incidence of stroke. So then they, they were trying to evaluate the importance of low birth weight followed by overweight in young adult age, which I thought was very interesting. It, it really goes back to the Barker hypothesis and this idea of if you're born small and and your weight increases over time in the years following birth, does that really lead to problems down the road? So the way they approach this question is that they created, um, I guess, turtiles is, is how we're going to pronounce this. They, they created three turtiles. Turtile one included babies with um, lower birth weights. Turtile two included babies with a regular or average birth weight. And turtile three were babies with a higher birth weight. So turtile one was 900 grams to 3.38 kilos. Turtile 2 was 3.38 kilos to 3.8 kilos, and turtile 3 was 3.8 to 6.63 kilograms. So individuals in turtile 1, so lower birth weights, followed by normal age, normal weight at age 20, and individuals in turtile 2 and overweight at age 20 had significantly increased risk of stroke compared with individuals in turtile 2 with normal weight at age 20. So just to rephrase those findings, babies with low birth weight that then had a normal weight at age 20, or babies with a normal birth weight that when were overweight had a higher risk of stroke. But the interesting one was for individuals with birth weight in turtile 1, so lower birth weight, who were then overweight in young adulthood, they had an 81% higher risk of adult stroke compared with individuals in turtile 2 where, who were normal uh, weight at age 20. So I thought that was very interesting um, and creating this relationship in uh, young men. Daphna, what did you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's in line with the the current the current state of thought and in our nutrition matters and our trajectory over time matters and what it strikes me is that we don't do any we don't do any anticipatory guidance about this specifically you know coming out of the NICU and and really even as a general pediatrician when i was a general right. pediatrician you know i think i think it's even more pervasive than that i think we should be wondering how are we going to get this type of paper in front of our adult neurologist right. colleagues and adult internal medicine folks in order to Free. incorporate right. the uh, right. history of low birth weight as a risk factor for strokes um that's that's yeah. i think is the question Yes, so much of your um, really your birth history birth history just goes out the window the minute you transition into adult. That's so care. true. That's right. <laughs> and and then you 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 wonder: Are we going to ask people if they were born preterm when we're evaluating them for their risk of stroke? And that should be the logical next step. Okay, but uh, okay, we spent twenty minutes. And uh, we have more papers to go. So, uh, well, let's, let's move on then. Okay, there's another article in the Journal of Pediatrics we wanted to talk about um, entitled "Bloodstream Infections in Preterm Neonates and Mortality Associated Risk Factors." Um, lead author uh, Michelle Budzinski. I think so. Um, this is out of the Mount Sinai Hospital, University of Toronto, and Sunnybrook Health Center Health Science Center. 
Um, so what they wanted to look at was the association of early. So they're saying um, early clinical and laboratory variables um, of around the time, plus or minus four hours of the onset of a positive uh, blood culture. And we'll talk about that specifically. And to look at the primary outcome, which was the episode-related mortality. So um, death. Yeah, really shining a light on when the infection is discovered. Discovered, yeah. So when you have a positive blood culture, what is what does the baby look like around that time? And then again, the, the primary outcome was um, death within seven days of the positive culture. Mm-hmm. So they did a retrospective cohort study looking at all neonates born less than 35 weeks of gestation um, in these two tertiary NICUs between 2011 and 2016 who had um, a nosocomial bloodstream infection. Um, And I told you about the primary outcomes. So their definition of nosocomial blood stream infection was defined as blood and or CSF culture collected beyond 72 hours of age positive for organism other than cons. So they chose... Yeah, that was important. Yeah, they chose not to include coag negative staph. Um, since in their documentation, they felt like it was difficult to establish if it was contaminant or not. Um, in general, they use only one blood culture. Some you know, units like ours, for example, you try to draw two blood cultures so that you can say, is this, is this a contaminant? Um, you know, we redraw and can we compare, uh, you know, our two positives versus one positive. So knowing that, so it was either blood or CSF culture positive after the first three days of life and, and not including cons. There were other exclusions as well, um, which I thought were important to note. And um, moving forward in other studies of sepsis and, and infection, we really do have to, I think, outline these groups um, specifically. So they excluded babies if they were diagnosed with neck or an intestinal perforation on the same day. If they were transferred for surgical evaluation within seven days um, of the positive culture. So, uh, again, trying to rule out some of those potentially intestinal translocations. If the antibiotics were discontinued less than five days, so feeling as though the team thought that this was a contaminant, or if the baby was already on antibiotics at the time of culture, uh-huh. um, which I thought was interesting. Were they, uh, you know, if a baby had two positive cultures, were they going to count them twice? But they, they've they excluded those babies. And then they told us about what they were looking for. So the, they looked at the following clinical and laboratory. And that was, that was important for them to look at the patient population so selectively, right? I mean, that was very inter- selective. Yeah. yeah. And that that makes it mm-hmm. interesting because at the end you have a patient population that is not really contaminated by all these other uh, diseases like NEC and so on, and and the data ends up being maybe a bit narrower, but extremely extremely well put together and 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 clean, I guess, right? I mean, that's that's the goal. Yeah, I, I agree with you, and I, I think they were really trying to categorize like the sick baby, right, you right. know, a uh, real true, uh, you know, our uh, uh, markers of sepsis. So, and they had a lot of data based on, you know, the kind of clinical findings. So they looked at between the four hours before and after somebody decided to get the culture that became positive. So right, they looked right. at the highest heart rate, the lowest systolic, diastolic, and mean blood pressures, the highest fraction of inspired oxygen, the highest mean airway pressure needed, the lowest white blood cell count, the lowest platelet count, and the highest base deficit 
highest and lowest blood glucose values and urine output, which I thought I, I was glad that they included. So for their results, uh, they uh, included a total of 142 neonates. The mean gestational age was uh, 26 weeks, uh, plus or minus 1.9 weeks. The mean birth weight, 833 grams, plus or minus 261 grams included during the study period. So, so really a, a small group of, of, of premature babies. The median age and weight at disease onset, so that positive blood culture, were 16 days of life um, and 800, uh, 893 grams. So they had 70 episodes, uh, 49% um, of the bacteremia was from gram-negative bacteria, 62 uh, of the episodes, 44% were from gram-positive bacteria. Six infants grew both gram-positive and gram-negative, um, and four had a bloodstream infection with a candida species. Ugh, yuck. That's... <laughs> yeah, I know. Yuck. Yeah, that's not something yuck. we want to see. Uh, totally. The most common bacterial isolates in order of prevalence, uh, number one, E. coli, NF52, uh, group E. strep, NF31, and then staph aureus, NF24. The rate of bloodstream infection-related mortality uh, was 14%, uh, so 20 of the infants died um, within the first seven days of that blood culture. Uh, five infants, I thought this was a useful granularity of the data. That's so right. Five infants died within 24 hours of disease onset, so getting that blood culture. Uh, 11 died between 24 and 48 hours of disease onset, so fast. And then the remaining four died between days two and day seven. In 16 of these 20 patients, mortality was from severe unresponsive cardiopulmonary failure. And in the remaining four, it actually resulted from withdrawal of life support um, for a range of factors, intractable seizures um, and severely abnormal neurologic status in conjunction with being acutely ill. Some other details, neonates who died from the bloodstream infection were of slightly lower gestational age at disease onset. The incidence of meningitis and indwelling central venous catheters were higher in those who died. However, it's funny how I highlighted the exact same passages as you, <laughs> which you, you thought was interesting. Absolutely. However, the differences did not reach statistical significance. And again, it was a, a small group. Um, so definitely things for us to, to worry about. When do we get our lines out? Not surprisingly, the neonates who died had lower blood pressure, lower platelet counts, lower blood glucose levels, and higher respiratory requirements, base deficit, and incidence of oliguria. I thought this was interesting. Only four infants uh, who died out of the 20 uh, were, yeah. you thought it was interesting too. Yeah, I highlighted that passage yes. too. <laughs> we're receiving inotropes within four hours of the disease onset, and none were receiving steroids. Uh-huh. The last thing I highlighted was that evidence of post-bloodstream infection, severe brain injury. So findings of intraventricular hemorrhage of grade three or higher or periventricular leukomalacia was similar between neonates who died and those who survived. Um, the other findings about the labs, they did a, a lot of a multivariable analysis demonstrated um, that the lowest mean blood pressure and highest base deficit within four hours of disease onset um, were independently associated with mortality. But when you put them together, um, they had the highest kind of predictive value. So area under uh, uh, area under the curve of 0.91. That, that was that was insane. <laughs> very, yeah, very, very 
uh, important to note. And then looking at, again, other lab values as a single measure, the base deficit of uh, greater than 6.9, so minus 6.9 or greater, was the best cutoff with 89% sensitivity and 71% specificity, specificity for mortality within seven days of a bloodstream infection onset. So those babies who were not having acidosis, who began to have acidosis, obviously that was really a harbinger for, for mortality. So there's more data, but right. those were the big picture, uh, I thought. What did you think? No, I, I agree with uh, everything you said. And um, I think it was nice of you to go over the different um, mortality time points. I think this was something that I took away from the paper is that when mm -hmm. you see mortality at two to seven days, uh, often you think that if, if I can get antibiotics on board within 48 hours, then then I'm safe. We're, right? we're in the safe. That's right. Yeah. And, and then... You're not. I mean, babies could still die the, this far out into the infection. So it reminds me of being vigilant. Um, the other thing that I think was really cool in this paper for the people who are going to um, check it out is that they developed a score, mm -hmm. right, um, where they are using the highest base deficit and the lowest mean blood pressure. And uh, the score, I mean, I can go over it, is uh, a constant times the highest base deficit minus another constant times the lowest uh, mean blood pressure. And... Um, what the test is defined as positive if the score exceeded a cutoff of minus 1.27 and negative otherwise. And what was interesting is that when they combined these two values, a positive test would have 82% sensitivity and 94% specificity for bloodstream-related infection mortality. Um, and so I think I think that was really interesting to... Uh, for the, for the group to put themselves out there and to provide a, a score that people could use. And I still have to, to play around with it, to be honest. But um, I mm -hmm. think this is really neat. And uh, for the people who are going to uh, check it out, they give you everything, basically. And uh, it, oh, it's yeah, fun. Oh, yeah, everything. Right. Yeah, and I think they went a step further in talking about, okay, well, how can how can we really hone in on which babies are, are at highest risk? And they talked about um, some of the other things we've talked about on the podcast, the NSOFA score. Uh -huh. um, can we use that with the clinical findings and the laboratory findings? And the NSOFA score does use some laboratory findings right. in it, um, but uh, to, to better especially some of these clinical features um, to better predict which babies are at risk, mm -hmm. risk for dying. So I thought it was interesting. I thought that having that really narrow group defined uh, was valuable. Um, so I learned something for yeah. sure. Yeah, same here. Shall we talk about BPD? Oh, yeah. Let's go. Your favorite topic. <laughs> yeah, I could, I could read a <laughs> BPD papers all day. This is just such a fascinating topic, you know? <laughs> and we have them every week. That's right. That's right. And that's just because I'm restraining myself to put even more papers in our uh, article folder. So yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, and the, the paper I would like to start with is published in uh, Pediatric Pulmonology. It's called In-Hospital Respiratory Viral Infections for Patients with Established BPD in the SARS-CoV-2 Era. First author is mm -hmm. our Twitter friend, uh, Matthew Kilt. And, uh, some of the folks at Nationwide Children, some of our friends from the BPD Collaborative, uh, including um, the notable Leif Nielen. So, so they're asking a very interesting um, question, which is, during the SARS-CoV-2 era, um, has there been any changes in mm -hmm. the positivity rate of RVIs, right? Respiratory viral infections. And I think people call them different things, right? I mean, they could call them RPPs, RVPs, uh, biofires. I mean, 
at the end of the day, they are these PCR panels that we send to look for viral uh, pathogens. And so their question was, because of COVID, has mm -hmm. the, the, the rates changed in terms of positivity? And so that's something that I've been wondering myself. And so let me go over some of the methods because these are um, very interesting. The study was retrospective, and this was done um, at Nationwide Children, which is very well known to have a large um, BPD center. They used the definition of BPD from um, Dr. Jensen's paper from the Neonatal mm -hmm. Research Network, right? Um, and you, the paper goes over the different uh, criteria, which we should probably all know at this point. And babies born at more than 32 weeks of gestation were excluded. RVI testing was abstracted from the electronic health uh, record. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's, that's where they got their data from. Interestingly enough, they outlined a lot of their policies for their unit. And I think this is very instructive for anybody interested in how Nationwide runs their BPD units, because obviously they're one of the top centers in the country and in the world. So there's a lot to learn for us there. So they say, our, our unit policy is to screen for Mercevia nasal swab on all patients admitted from outside hospital at the time of admission. So that was interesting. However, um, they are following a very strict protocol when it comes to uh, checking for viral pathogens. And they do not do routine MRSA or viral pathogen surveillance cultures, right? I mean, some, some units do do that. They go over some of the restrictions that were applied in their units. And uh, they talk about the different use of PPE, droplet precautions, so on and so forth. They even talk about some of the way they were able to accommodate uh, social distancing on rounds um, and the number of people on rounds and so on and so forth. So I thought, I thought, <clears throat> I thought that was interesting too. But the interesting part, obviously, related to the COVID era is the different restrictions on visitation. So they, they are talking about that at the end of their uh, methods. And they say, lastly, um, Nationwide Children's Hospital developed a hospital-wide policy of limiting family visitation to only one family member at the patient's bedside per 24-hour period and only two family members to visit the mm -hmm. entire duration of the patient's hospitalization. Obviously, these are hospital-wide um, restrictions and and I, I don't think they're making the case for this being something that was specifically designed for their BPD babies. I'm sure that if if they had their say, they, they would have liked as much interaction with the family um as possible, right? I mean that 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 should be mm -hmm. yeah that makes sense. So in terms of determining uh, when they were doing these viral uh, panels, that was very interesting because they did have practice guidelines and they're sharing those practice guidelines mm -hmm. with us. They're saying that it's difficult to um, make um, to to the diagnosis of RVI is difficult, right? Because BPD patients have so much uh, variability in their in their care and in the natural progression of their BPD that it could be difficult. So they're following, and so they're ordering respiratory viral panel when three conditions are met. Basically, if there's a fever without a clear source, number two, if there's deterioration in respiratory status that cannot be explained right. by BPD alone, and three, if there's recent exposure to sick contacts. Um, nasopharyngeal swabs were taken for babies who were not intubated. Tracheal aspirates were taken from babies who were intubated. Their biofire panel included 22 viral pathogens. And the primary outcome of the study was a positive RVI, right? A uh, positive test result. Um, so without much uh, further discussion into their mythology, um, let's get into the results. Mm -hmm. Um so they had 402 patients that met inclusion criteria, 44% of whom underwent RVI testing. 
Um, in general, the members of their uh, cohort were born extremely preterm and had low birth weight. 57% of them were treated with invasive mechanical, mechanical ventilation at 36 weeks and reached the status of grade 3 BPD. Patients who underwent RVI testing in the SARS-CoV-2 era were more likely to be born via C-section when compared to patients who underwent RVI testing before the SARS-CoV-2 era. So what was interesting is that when the median, the median number of respiratory viral tests performed per patient mm -hmm. per month was not significantly different in the SARS-CoV-2 era uh, versus in the pre-SARS-CoV-2 era, which I think, I think was interesting, right? Because at the end of the day, you wonder if, because there's been in the news so much talk about the fact that other viral illnesses are in the on the decline because of uh, restrictions and lockdowns maybe people were less uh, inclined to order them but it turns out that no they had they had this similar number of, of tests in both cohort these are the main findings in the pre-SARS-CoV-2 era 30 percent of viral panels were positive compared to six during the SARS-CoV-2 era and that was I mean 30 percent versus six percent is is pretty significant p-value is like 0. Mm -hmm. 0.0001 <laughs> and Interesting, uh, yeah and so um they go over the different results of their rvi which pathogens were more likely and so on and so forth but um i guess that's not really the big question of this paper is should we restrict even more visitation to the NICU? <laughs> Well, so I'm just saying so, that to, to piss you off. I'm sorry. So, no, but that's a very, that's a very interesting point. So um, we restrict a lot, right? Uh, we all across the world, we have been restricting parent um, interaction with the babies, right? But but babies see way more people than their parents on a day to day basis, and I haven't seen a single study that looked at that's who right. who was the transmitter of infection, mm -hmm. right? And it could just as easily be the nurses and the doctors and the therapist sure. as, sure. as a parent. So my answer is no to that, but <laughs> will, will we ever go back to these decreased mitigation strategies when we shouldn't be, um, I, I'm misrepresenting the paper on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's not what they were trying to that's say, right. obviously. That they didn't say they're, that. Yeah, they're not trying to say that we should restrict visitation <laughs> in the NICU more to prevent the spread of viral illnesses. Um, I think the, right. the main point of the paper is that as lockdowns have been in place and there's less congregation, viral illnesses have uh, spread less in the community and by yeah. default, right, in the NICU as well. And I think that's what they're trying to document and doing it very elegantly. So, Well, and I, I mean, that's super important, right? I mean, having viral outbreaks in an ICU of yeah, medically yeah. complex it's, it's babies big, is yeah. is really a problem. Um, Huge. And then we just have to, uh, you know, what what happens when finally things are in a lull again? Which I hope. What, I hope what's what we, one day we they hope, will be. We always hope. You that. know, what do we do about the mitigation strategies and and weighing the risks of developmental you know, uh, interrupting some of that normal development, right. um, and wearing masks. I don't know. Yeah. I don't yeah. know where we go from here. Um, right. we'll see. Yeah, we'll see <laughs> what we do. Uh -huh. And, and I, I thought there was an interesting paper answering an interesting question. Yeah. Should, should we move on to other papers? Yeah, we've got a few more. That's right. The, the next paper that is also related to BPD is is published in the Journal of Pediatrics. And, and I was very happy to see this paper because it it comes from my hometown of Marseille, France. And God knows there's not a lot of NICU papers coming mm -hmm. out of, of my hometown. Uh, so the, the, the paper is called Neighborhood Disadvantage and Early Respiratory Outcomes in Very Preterm Infants with Bronchopulmonary Dysplasia. First author is Juliette Deschamps and um, yeah, mm -hmm. study out of France. 
And so the objective of the study was to use a French uh, regional yeah. data set um, in order to determine whether neighborhood disadvantages influence the risk of respiratory-related hospital admission in the year after discharge from the NICU in a population of very preterm infants born with, uh, born with BPD. I guess I don't know if they're born with BPD who developed BPD. Um, so the, the way they uh, selected their patients, they looked at babies that were born less than 32 weeks of gestation between September 2006 and December 2014. BPD was defined as a need for oxygen or ventilator support at 36 weeks postmenstrual age. So not really one of the common definitions that we use in the US, but fairly typical for other papers published from France who are dealing with BPD. Um, and so they, they obviously are benefiting from um, right. the French uh, socialized medical system where they have a good uh, tracking of their patients, good follow-up. And, and so they're, they're talking about this BPD follow-up clinic where pretty much 82% of their, of their babies usually follow up within their first year uh, of life. The study was done prospectively and um, babies in attended follow-up BPD clinic in the first year of life every three months. Infants discharged on supplemental oxygen received regular home nurse visits and were seen every month until oxygen was discontinued. Interestingly mm -hmm. enough, uh, a paid parental leave program was offered to yeah. parents who postponed their work activity and stayed at home with their infants for six to 12 months after neonatal hospital discharge. So that's kind of the perks of socialized medicine, I guess. <laughs> um, then they defined this SDI, right? The Socioeconomic Deprivation Index. And basically, I'm not really going to go too much into it. It has various components. It involves something like uh, median household income, percentage of people above 15 who failed, high who, who failed to graduate from high school, uh, percentage of single-parent families, so on and so forth. And the bottom line is a high number mm -hmm. is not good. Uh, so if you... And so it goes from one to five, mm -hmm. one being um, a good index and, and five being terrible. And um, yeah, so that's that's the. And and of course, like you, all the all the babies had universal health care. So all of their medical health care right. costs were covered. That's right. That's an important point to mention as well. Um, so when, when they were looking at respiratory related hospital admission, they defined that as a at least one overnight stay in the hospital during the year following discharge from the neonatal intensive care unit for any sort of respiratory causes. And they included in that upper respiratory tract infections, lower respiratory tract disorders that include like bronchiolitis, uh, et cetera, wheezing, asthma, um, according to the ICD-10 codes that they found in the chart. Something that was not so good, but I was happy that they acknowledged it in their methods, um, considering the effects of maternal mm -hmm. smoking and because of the high rate of missing values, they had to perform multiple imputation, but they were missing about 41% of their data concerning maternal smoking, which I think for respiratory related illnesses and healthcare utilization, that's an important point. And for the people who may not be aware of this in, in Europe and specifically in France, smoking is, is quite prevalent, much more than uh, here in the United States. So let's go into the results. And uh, the study ended up including 423 infants. The mean gestational age of the study population was 27 weeks, and their mean birth weight was 940 grams. Of those, 51% lived in a disadvantaged area. So let's look at some of their uh, results. 
infants, 18%, were hospitalized for respiratory causes in the first year after discharge from the neonatal intensive care unit, accounting for a total of 96 hospitalizations. And the breakdown was not very surprising. 62% were for bronchiolitis, 12% for pneumonia, 10% for asthma, URI were 9.4%, and then they had 5% for BPD decompensation. I think that was probably just a catch-all if they couldn't figure out um, the, the diagnosis, I guess. RSV was tested in 41 of the 60 bronchiolitis mm-hmm. events, so that was about like 70%, and um, 55% of them were positive. So that was really interesting, right? Compared with the non-hospitalized infants, the hospitalized infants were more premature at birth, not really surprising, were born more frequently during the winter season, and lived in urban areas. So we'll, we'll get back to that, and, and I have something to say about that. The other findings were that the hospitalized infants lived preferentially in disadvantaged area with a SDI high level in 68% versus 47% um, of the babies that of the controls. Hospital admission rates were approximately three times higher in infants living in disadvantaged area from 8.8% at the SDI low levels to mm-hmm. 24% right at the SDI high level. As expected, um, and I quote, maternal high school education level and breastfeeding rates declined as the SDI mm-hmm. level increased. So obviously, as you reached right, um, as you reached more disadvantaged uh, neighborhoods, the uh, level of education um, was not as high, and uh, the rates of breastfeeding were lower. I wanted to go back to this finding, Daphna, before before uh, bef- before you, you give us your opinion on the paper. Compared to the non-hospitalized infants, the hospitalized infants were more premature at birth. Fine were born more frequently during the winter season mm-hmm. and lived in urban areas. How interesting was that? Um, I feel like we don't tend to ask enough, mm-hmm. right? I mean, we, we don't really go over this with the parents when it comes to we don't ask. Yeah. The, the, type of, the type of home they're going back into, unless they're going back with medical equipment and this really becomes an issue. But otherwise, it's something that we should probably focus on a mm-hmm. bit more. The other interesting thing is, do we tend to think about the date of birth of the baby and, and what season were they born in and how does that affect uh, how does that affect the the season right. of the year at the time of discharge considering their hospitalization i think these are things that we could think about now when we're looking at our patients both on admission and on discharge so anyway i, I know you like that paper very much and so i'm, I'm curious to to hear your thoughts as well Well, I think the first thing that was striking was actually compared to some of the data that we've looked at, uh, hospitalization rates are are pretty low, right? uh, right? And so I think that speaks to the good follow-up care that they have and specialized care of BPD babies, good access to regular RSV vaccination um, and um, great home nursing. And I forgot when, which journal club we talked about that, but we did discuss that if you had good outpatient follow-up, your healthcare utilization after discharge was low, right? Way, way down. Yeah. Absolutely. But the fact of the matter is even, I, that's what I thought was so striking about this. I, I'm not surprised in our healthcare system where your healthcare is tied to your work and your very much your socioeconomic status um, that, that the healthcare utilization is higher, especially emergency visits and hospitalizations. But I, it was striking to me that even when, you know, healthcare uh, expenses were were the same, right? So that was a stressor that was removed. Babies in high um, 
SDI, so uh-huh. socioeconomic deprivation areas, were two to three times more likely to be hospitalized as compared to those living in affluent neighborhoods. And it's it's just a reminder of the things we've been talking about the last few episodes is that there are so many stressors um, on families uh, that that interfere with their you know ability to 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 stay healthy. Right. Um, that you know we really have to look at what, what does, what do our housing situations look like? Um, what is, what are the baby's childcare look like? You know, so many things that we, gosh, can't even begin to start to account for at discharge, but we can try. Right. Right. And, and to that end, I want to briefly mention that we're again, we're always short on time, but I wanted to mention this article that was published in um, pediatric pulmonology and it's called family history of asthma influences outpatient respiratory outcomes in children mm-hmm. with BPD. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was first author is Julian Maglin, and this is uh, from the Division of Pulmonary and Sleep uh, at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. So I'm not going to go in depth w- uh, when it comes to this paper, but I will give you a little bit of what they were trying to do and some of their main outcomes. So what they were trying to look at was mm-hmm. does a family history is, is family history of asthma a risk factor for more severe BPD as well as a, right. as as well as higher rates of acute care usage and respiratory symptoms in preterm infants and children with BPD in the outpatient setting. So really looking at that family history of asthma and see how that affected babies uh, with BPD. And their results were quite interesting, right? Um, children with family history of asthma had higher odds of emergency visit emergency department visits use of systemic steroids, nighttime respiratory symptoms, mm-hmm. and activity limitation. There was no association between family history of asthma and BPD severity. And so the conclusion of the study is that children with BPD and family history of asthma were more likely to have respiratory symptoms, acute care usage in the first three years of life, and that family right. history of asthma was associated with a lower socioeconomic status. Family history of asthma could predict an increased likelihood of both ED visits and need for systemic steroids in infants and children with BPD followed in the outpatient setting. So another topic, right, that parents often ask us about when it comes to to asthma. Yeah, and they f- frankly, they ask a lot, right? Parents are always asking, is my baby going to have asthma? And and we are going to, we right. should take <laughs> a better family history <laughs> so that we can do better anticipatory guidance about which babies are more likely to develop you know, asthma type symptoms than, than, than others. And what can we do? How can we get engaged in our communities to, to help with some of these other factors that make uh, a difference for long-term outcomes and healthcare utilization? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, we may not be able to change all the um, external circumstances of our patients, but there's a way for us to be aware of them and try to mitigate them one way or another. So yeah, that that was definitely interesting. Um, we are getting close to the end of time, but I thought that it would be pertinent to talk about um, this study, end-of-life care related to stress in the PICU and NICU, a cross-sectional survey in a German tertiary center. Right. Um, so this comes from uh, the Open Access Journal. Frontiers in Pediatrics. Uh, Frontiers in Pediatrics. Um, lead author uh, Lars Garten, um, and uh, again, this is coming from Berlin, Germany. So they wanted to look at and compare um, the perceived care-related distress and experiences in both NICU and PICU nurses. Um, so it was a single center, and they used a cross-sectional survey design and anonymous uh, self-report questionnaire, um, again, to study 
this quote unquote moral distress and caring for neonatal and pediatric patients, uh, specifically in the end of life. Um, so they had 49 NICU nurses, 24 PICU nurses, um, and the NICU nurses came from two uh, large NICUs and the PICU nurses came from one med surge PICU and one Hemonc PICU in Germany. Um, interestingly, they were almost all female, all but one participant that responded That's uh, were female. Uh, yeah. Um, majority though had, I thought this was very interesting, had greater than 10 years of ICU experience. And so I thought that might change how people answer these Mm -hmm. questions. Um, 50% answered yes to quote unquote religion. So I I took that to mean, you know, religion or faith was a, was an important part of their lives, but they didn't specify that. Yeah. And the majority were caring for about one to five end of life patients per year. So that tells you kind of what their population looks like. Right. The survey was an 18 item questionnaire written in German contained four types of questions. Yes or no questions, multiple choice questions, um, scaled Likert questions, um, and then an open ended kind of free response. So they were looking particularly at these 22 potential sources for distress. And there's a wide range here. I'm not going to be able to read them all, um, but I'll get to kind of the meat of of the results that the number one uh, source of distress in end-of-life situations for both the PICU and the NICU nurses um, were staffing shortages, unfortunately. Um, and so for the NICU, that was about 65% for the PICU, hundred percent of nurses oh picked staffing shortages to be one of, I think it was their top three that they had to pick some of the adding to the craziness of the PICU. That's right. Can, can you imagine, um, you know, and we see this every day. We, we don't always maybe feel it as much as, as, as the nurses do in, in these, uh-huh. these situations. Um, the other things that were at the top of the list for the NICU nurses um, included especially close relationship with the child, especially close relationship with the parents or relatives, and extended duration of the care assignment. Um, so you were on that baby's kind of primary care team, it seemed, all at identical rates of about 59% of respondents. The PICU nurses also rated their quote unquote own expectations of terminal care not being fulfilled, multiple deaths within a short time, so within a week, and observing coworkers being in distress. So all of those were about the middle 66% of respondents as frequent sources of distress. Then they were asked to self-report their top five sources of distress. And the three most frequently reported distressing factors for NICU nurses were one, lack of clearly defined and agreed, agreed upon therapeutic goals, pain, and dyspnea. And for the NICU, the PICU nurses, um, again, insufficient time and staffing, pain, and dyspnea. Um, and then lack of clearly defined goals, which was a number one for the NICU nurses, was actually only named by one PICU nurse. Uh-huh. So I thought that was interesting. I will come back to that. They also looked at distress-related reactions or symptoms in the healthcare worker, um, again, using a Likert scale. And the most frequent distress-related reactions or symptoms for NICU nurses were excessive self-criticism. <laughs> I feel that one. Emotional exhaustion or symptoms and speechlessness. So, I mean, they really even had trouble putting their thoughts together. Yeah, t- together. The PICU nurses identified also emotional exhaustion or symptoms, sleep difficulty, upsetting dreams, and irritability as most frequent distress-related reactions or wow. symptoms. 
and really uh, all of those, even individually or taken together, I mean, can really interfere with your work, but also your, your personal life, obviously. Yeah. Then they did also look for 15 helpful mechanisms for potential coping. Um, and the top of the list um, for helpful for coping by the NICU nurses were discussion time before the patient's death, almost 90%, team support, uh, almost 90%, and discussion time after the patient's death, almost 90%. The picky nurses identified compassion, almost 100%, team support and personal and private life hobbies, and discussion time after the patient's death, uh, all nearing 90% as, as, hopeful, as helpful coping mechanisms. So I took a few things for this, um, for the NEOs at least, because that's where we work. Uh, I think that, yeah, defining our goals of care um, with patients and families uh, helps patients, but it also helps providers and mm -hmm. caregivers. Um, and can we target pain and dyspnea? That's something that neonatologists um, are not very good at doing uh, in the end of life, but it is affecting our patients, but also our caregivers. And then Easily discussion time before and after death that include the bedside nurse. So we are having those conversations, hopefully most of the time with families, but they don't always include the nurse. Um, and so I think that's something we can do. So there's less discrepancy about what what the what the plan is, and and the whole team has to know what the plan mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. um, and we can't we can't leave the, the nurses right. Right. Uh, in the yeah. dark about that. Yeah. And it feels like you almost need a, a period of time to just decompress and the staff should maybe just get together and just go have a bite to eat. Right. Yeah. And and just be able to talk this over and talk about how they feel um, outside mm -hmm. of the code. I feel like there's a lot of pressure that after a code, it's the like, all right, next race, patient. Yeah. Right. It's just nonstop and goes back to some of the things, obviously, that we discussed with Dr. Turner on, on our last episode. But yeah, definitely an interesting paper. Yeah, I think, um, you know, lots of hospitals are finding ways to do a quick debrief or a pause or a moment um, just to give people the time to just sit with the weight of that. And and we're finding that not, not it doesn't even have to be that long um, that we can do that. The other thing I thought. Right. But these are very technical. It's about what did we do right? What we could have done better. Right. So, yeah, that's different than this. Right. And we need something to talk about how we are feeling after a traumatic event, I, I believe. Yeah. And sometimes it, uh, the most effective ones I found are not even really um, wordy or didactic. It's just saying, like, let's just take a second and like this happened to this family, to this patient. But to all of us, we're all involved in this care. So let's just like take a moment to breathe and reset before we right. have to rush off to do all of those other things we have to do. The other thing that I, I think I can start to do in my day-to-day um, -day care is this pre-brief, right? So if we know that the end of life is near, we just bring together the team. Um, you're going so to end up being the Green Reaper if you start doing that. I don't think so. I don't think so. Here's the data. The data says pre-briefs pre -briefs help. So um, we know that uh, studies show that we, our nurses are, are having distress, uh, much like we are describing, um, and that, um, doing good interventions, um, for ICU staff for emotional here, they have emotional and physiologic physical harm by optimizing institutional support. And, and, uh, these interventions 
not only optimize the the providers, but they optimize the quality of care of the dying ICU patient. So even if we don't do it for ourselves, we should do it for our patients and families. Do you think we have time for another paper? Well, I mean, I think we're 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 over time already. We're over time already. So so then let's do a uh, let's do a Twitter highlight. Yeah. Okay. Please. So this um, Twitter uh, highlight comes from Katarzyna Piatek, mm-hmm. I think, from from Finland, um, and I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly. Um, she posted a tweet saying, I've just given a talk about neonatal medicine podcasts for my hospital, which again, it's in Finland and I'm not going to butcher the name of that, of that poor hospital. <laughs> and, um, for my hospital colleagues, I told them about my favorite episodes of the incubator of two peas in a pods, the BMJ podcast. I also mentioned webinars from newborn brains and 99 NICU. Um, so yeah, thank you, Katarzyna, so much for uh, highlighting much, yeah. our podcast and uh, for mentioning us to your colleague. That was um, very thoughtful. Yeah. Thank you also to uh, all of our listeners for continuing to um, download the episodes in large volume. We're very impressed by the growth of our community. So thank you. We're, we're humbled and we're really working very hard to provide you new content and opportunities that uh, I think will be very exciting. Daphne, anything else you want to talk about? I guess that's all. Have a good week, everybody. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Incubator. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Instagram or Twitter at NICU Podcast. Personally, I am on Twitter at Dr. NICU, spelled D-R-N-I-C-U, and Daphna is at Dr. Daphna MD. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.